You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Colin Campbell, Will Doran, and on the phone from D.C., Brian Murphy of our McClatchy D.C. Bureau. So we're still in the middle of candidate filing week, candidate filing period, which feels like it's kind of goes forever, but we're now five days from the end of it and things are kind of shaping up. We've got a uh, lieutenant governor's race with more than a dozen candidates. We've got people deciding which districts they're gonna run in under these new maps for legislature and Congress. And we've got a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of shuffling to, uh, for positions. So um, what are you guys seeing? What are the surprises so far? You know, there are probably fewer surprises than uh, you, know, you might expect to see. Um, Council of State races, mostly people we've uh, known were running. I mean, few people switching races. Um, State Representative Derwin Montgomery, a Democrat from Winston-Salem, initially filed seek re-election. Um, he has since uh, switched and uh, filed for the 6th District, which is uh, one of the left-leaning congressional seats that have uh, emerged under a new map. Uh, so he'll be one of the prominent candidates there, along with Kathy Manning. Um, there have been a few people who have been looking for uh, I, I guess it's considered to some people to be a promotion between the state house and the state senate. So last week we saw Representative Lisa Barnes from Nash County, Republican, um, had initially filed to seek re-election to her house seat, uh, decided that she now wants to uh, take a stab at joining the senate. So she's going to run for the open seat left by Senator Rick Horner's retirement in Nash and Northern Johnston. So um, setting up a probably a county against county primary there because the um, Johnson County Commissioner Patrick Harris is already running um, as a Republican in that race. Um, so we could see uh, some, some interesting primaries for the open seat races um, in some of the, the legislative contests. But like I say, nothing too earth shattering in terms of the, the filing period. I think, you know, we're we're getting towards the end and usually the, the exciting stuff happens like the last day, the last couple hours when somebody uh, either switches races or jumps in out of nowhere and decides they're gonna run. We're still waiting to hear from a few prominent people, too. Mark Walker is one. Um, so we'll find out uh, hopefully soon what he's decided to do. He's not going to run in his current district, which has been turned into a Democratic district. He's a Republican. Uh, he might challenge another incumbent, or he might run for lieutenant governor, or um, I suppose governor, or Senate. Uh, Brian, uh, we'll find out more soon, but uh, does that pretty much cover all the options for him? I guess another option is just to wait and run for Soil something and in water 2022. Commissioner, yeah. maybe if you wanted yeah. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think uh, that 2022 seat uh, where the Senate seat that's going to be vacated, uh, we all presume by Richard Burr, who said he's not going to run for re-election. I, I think given the fact that that seat is going to be open and given the fact that in 2022 we're going to have new congressional districts once again um, mandated by the Constitution because of, of the census and North Carolina is expected to get a 14th seat, so they're really going to have to um, shuffle the districts around. Um, I think George Holding, who's not running for re-election in the second district, uh, the Wake County, the now Wake County-centric district, um, and Mark Walker ha- certainly have some options. Um 
Whereas I think Holding has said now he's going to sit it out and and wait and see what happens in 22. Uh, I get the sense that Mark Walker wants to run for something in 20 uh, while also perhaps keeping his options open in 22. Not sure what he's going to do, but but a job like lieutenant governor, in my mind, makes some sense. Um you're, you know, because if he were to win the lieutenant governor election in 2020, uh, he would he would have a job even if he was not able to get the nomination or the job or the Senate in 22. It, it makes more sense for him to get a job that carries him through um, the, the 22 election that would allow him to run for Senate without fear of losing a job. I think that might have been one thing that kept Democratic candidates from necessarily running against Tom Tillis in 2020 uh, they know there's going to be an open seat in 2022 and if they win their four-year election in 2020 then then they already have a job and can use that as a platform to run in 22 without giving up their job so I, I think a lot of this is probably uh, we're getting a look at how the sausage is made a little bit with these new districts popping up and people you know uh, district hopping or job hopping as they uh, try to find a job that they or an election that they might be able to win Another person who we might see looking for a job is Pat McCrory. Um, we have not heard whether the former governor is going to run again in 2020. And polls keep showing that he would start out as a frontrunner. Yeah, there was a Subitas uh, did a poll last week uh, that uh, polled the, uh, the two actual candidates for uh, governor on the Republican side, Holly Grange and Dan Forrest, but also just for fun. Uh, threw in Pat McCrory's name as well to see how he did and turns out he's actually leading the polling um, by I think it was double digits or at least close to it. Um, he had 40 something percent, uh, Dan Forrest had 30 something percent and then Holly Grange was way down with only I think three or four percent and then you had a ton of undecideds. Um, Probably but, speaks uh, to as much as anything about how people just haven't quite learned about Dan Forrest yet or don't know much about him anyway. Yeah, and, yeah. I and think, even more so Holly yeah, Grange. I, I think you really don't know Holly Grange. Grange right? Yeah, the huge number of undecideds points to that. And I mean, you even saw the Civitas president, you know, Donald Bryson came out and said, yeah, we don't really know like how much this shows that just McCrory has a ton of name recognition and it's so really in the race that that's really all that matters to voters at this point. Or, you know, is there actual like real demand for... Uh, a McCrory Cooper rematch in 2016. Yeah, I suspect he's trying to do his research because he went on his radio show to talk about the poll results and uh, definitely left his options open. But he's been leaving his options open for a while, and we're we're definitely getting to the point now. If you want to raise the money required to run for something as huge as governor, um, you've got to you know jump in the water at this point. And um, the I fact that he's not makes me think he uh, he may not actually pull the trigger. We'll see. I, I asked McCrory in in person. I think it was maybe in October. Oh yeah, he held a press ago. conference out uh, of the blue about I forget what it the was. Atlantic was Coast about, Pipeline. Yeah, yeah, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline report. stuff. And I I showed up to this uh, fundraiser dinner he was at and asked him about you know press conference stuff and pipeline stuff and also his twenty twenty two options and he again wouldn't really commit one way or the other way. You know, just said he thinks. Cooper hasn't done a good job and you know needs to needs to be replaced, but wouldn't wouldn't say whether he plans to be the one to replace him or not. So, Brian mentioned the uh, uh, new round of drawing after the next census, and Will, you wrote about what might happen with regard to rural and urban power after that census, as well as kind of where things stand now, uh, with rural areas being pretty well represented at the general assembly in terms of the powerful state lawmakers, but 
Um, possibly a shift to more urban areas uh, after the next after yeah. the next census. Yeah, Brian's absolutely right. We are expected to gain another seat in Congress uh, because we're growing so fast. Since 2010, we've added something like 800,000 people. So. Uh, and that's according to 2018 numbers. So we're adding around 100,000 new people a year in North Carolina. That's huge growth. Uh, you know, we're already one of the biggest states in the country, but almost all of that growth has gone to Raleigh and Charlotte um, and their suburbs. Uh, Wake and Mecklenburg County have picked up something like 40 or 45% of those 800,000 new people who have come in since 2010. And the other, you know, 55 or 60% have gone to the state's other 98 counties combined. Um, so. And then when you dig into the numbers even further, you see that a lot of the rural areas are actually losing population or being stagnant, um, you know, and certainly below, below average growth for the state. And so what that means is, you know, as you, you know, get ready for drawing these new lines, both for the state legislature and for the House of Representatives, that, you know, some power is going to shift more towards the, the urban areas. You know, you already have, you know, in the, you know, State Senate, for instance, you know, each seat has, you know, around 200,000 people that it represents. And, you know, you have some Senate seats that represent seven, eight, nine, ten different counties, and then some Senate seats that represent, like, a neighborhood in Raleigh, essentially, or, you know, a few neighborhoods in Raleigh. Um, so I, I think you'll see more shifts like that. And, I, you know, it's, as long as our growth projections haven't been completely wrong, <laughs> um, you know, and obviously it will depend a lot on the 2020 census. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much undisputed that uh, rural areas have really benefited from the last decade of representation. Um, you know, obviously, Senate Leader Phil Berger is from a very small town in Eden, North Carolina, uh, right on the Virginia border. House Speaker Tim Moore lives right on the South Carolina border in Kings Mountain, another pretty small town. And, um, you know, both the, the House and the Senate Majority Leaders are from Eastern North Carolina. Um, so, you know, you, you have had, you know, the rural areas really politically represented, but, you know, as, as there become more political seats in urban areas, fewer in rural areas, you know, we'll see how that goes. So the other thing you covered this week, Will, is voting machines, um, how we're actually going to do the voting when we uh, decide who should be in charge here. And they, uh, the State Board of Elections took a look at um, what counties are going to be required to use. Um, so what's happening there? Yeah, so this has been going on, well, literally for years, but it's really started ramping up uh, earlier this year, this summer. Uh, the state needs to get new voting machines in place before the 2020 elections. And there are these old machines that have been used in places like Mecklenburg and Guilford County that, uh, according to a state, law passed a couple years ago are no longer allowed to be used because they don't have any sort of paper records, receipts, anything like that that you can use to audit it and make sure that, you know, the election wasn't hacked. Um, so we are phasing those out and uh, in their place we've approved multiple different types of uh, options for counties to use. Uh, obviously they can do uh, what, what are called handmark paper ballots, you know, when you just take a pen and bubble in your choice, that's what we use. Uh, in Wake County and all throughout the Triangle, and actually most of the state uses that, but there are a few counties, most notably Mecklenburg, which like touchscreen machines. They're better for uh, disability access, you know, ADA requirements, uh, and there's, you know, there's a litany of other reasons why uh, elections administrators like them. It, it can make it a little bit easier on local government officials to use touchscreens. Um, 
No hanging chads. You can tell <laughs> no hanging what chads. their what someone's intention is. Right. You don't see somebody halfway bubble in mm-hmm. one name, but then exit out and bubble in another name. And it's like, who did they mean to vote for? Do we even count this? You know, it's just you only press one button, and that's who they vote for. Um, so it can make it a little bit easier to do things like that. Um, but there are uh, some election security advocates out there who are very concerned about the the touchscreen machines and. It's, Specifically, uh, this one type, uh, well, one company's machine is called the ESNS, and they're the largest provider of voting machines in North Carolina and in the entire country. Um, they're, they're the biggest game in town, and they had a new type of machine approved uh, this summer, but then last month they come to the state and say, oh, turns out we actually don't have anywhere close to enough machines of that type that we got y'all to approve, so we need to substitute this other kind and but you have to think they would have known at the time right you would think so um i didn't really get an answer from the esns people when i asked them why that happened they just said that you know they are happy to be you know right election coordinators are pretty bad about it they <laughs> seem to think that the company was being sort of disingenuous but they I mean, the majority felt like they didn't have a choice but to approve them at this point yeah i mean it, it wasn't you know like they're like oh you know we got a higher demand than expected it was you know we are going to be able to provide maybe one in every six machines that counties are asking for so they were clearly very low on you know their their inventory um and you know who knows if they just didn't think to check before going through or you know if they did kind of you know string things along we don't know um are these new, these different, these machines that much different from the other ones? That's the big question. Yeah. Um, ESNS says that they're not that much different, and all the differences are improvements. They say there's, you know, software updates, there's, uh, you know, better security functions, there's improved disability access. So all the changes that are there are improvements. Um, on the other side, you have people saying, we don't know how different they are because the way, basically, the way that the board went about this vote that they did on Thursday, or last Friday, which passed pretty narrowly, three to two, um, they kind of skipped a lot of the testing and certifications and, you know, cybersecurity work that they that they do, what, you know, what they did for the old machines, what they did for some of the other machines that they've approved, they kind of skipped over that and, you know, just essentially took ESNS's word for it that, you know, the really kind of like how the internal computer systems work wasn't that much different than what they had already tested and approved and signed off on. So there's kind of this, you know, this tension right now between uh, some people on, or the majority of the Board of Elections, uh, who thinks that these machines are fine, they are safe, that, you know, these, you know, outcries about security and hacking are just completely exaggerated and overblown versus, um, you know, all of these kind of outsider people and a minority of people on the Board of Elections who say, hey, you know, we need to slow down. We know that the Russians tried to hack our elections in 2016. Who knows, you know, what's going to happen in 2020. If you have Russia, if you have other hostile countries like China, for instance, also or Iran trying to get into our elections. Like, we need to make sure that, you know, we are being maybe overly cautious. Do, do you know if these new machines have been already used in any other states or anywhere else? Did that, did that come up at all? So ESNS has many, many different types of voting machines, and the type of machine we have now is a very close cousin to some machines that have actually recently made the news um, in a handful of states for causing some pretty head-scratching problems in local elections. In the in the 2019 elections that we just had. There was a, I think it was a judicial race up in Pennsylvania um, where 
it, you know, one candidate in reality won, but the machines originally only said that they got like a couple dozen votes or something like that. And no one seems to quite know why that happened. And those machines that were used in that judicial election are the same ones, or not the same ones, but they're similar to the ones that we just approved here. Hmm. Um, but it's also worth noting, you know, that those machines did a ton of different races, you know, in many different cities and towns all across Pennsylvania. And there's, you know, kind of just this one that had this fluke, um, which is why everyone is so confused. You know, why just that one was it a problem with the way the ballot was designed? Was it a problem with the machine? Was it someone targeting this one specific, you know, judge race for whatever reason? Uh, no one really knows, but. And ultimately it's up to the counties, right? So if they don't want to choose this, these ES&S machines, they can go to a competitor's machines that sure. have also been approved by the state, so. Right, so there are there are three different companies that have been approved for the touchscreen style machines. Um, it's uh, Clear Ballot and Heart InterCivic and ES&S. And then if you want to just avoid the touchscreens entirely, uh, you can go to the hand-marked paper ballots, like I said, which is you know what most of the state uses. And that's actually, that's a different type of ES&S machine that's used to uh, to record those ballots as well. Um, like I said, they are really big, the big player, the kind of the most, you know, big, biggest range of, you know, machines and options and expertise throughout the country. Gotcha. Well, it'll also be the first election where we have voter ID and uh, Colin, you've been keeping track of the requirements. It's pretty much all settled, right? Which vote, which IDs will count as voter IDs, how that's going to work. Um, yeah, so the, the thing that they're trying to figure out the final uh, approvals for right now is the um, county board of elections issued IDs. So if you uh, are having trouble getting another ID or just feel like this is the most convenient option for you, you can go to the elections office and they will make you a photo ID that will count in the election. So the question is, exactly how does that work so there was a public hearing held about those rules last week uh the comment period on that i think is open through early january uh but the thing that you know is i think most interesting about that is that uh during early voting um those one-stop sites will legitimately be one-stop sites so you could show up to those not having registered to vote not having had a, an id available and you can register on the spot you can get your id made and then you can vote um and so there's some questions about uh how that's going to work. There were some um, voting rights advocates who spoke at the uh, committee or the board uh, hearing last week uh, with some fairly minor tweaks to it. But it seems like for the most part, um, a, a lot of the different groups are on board with the ways that this is going to work and are sort of happy with how this um, extra ID option is, is going to play out. And unlike a few years ago when we had voter ID briefly before it was struck down by a court, your student ID will be good for uh, your voter ID, but only if you go to certain schools. Yeah, right? so the UNC system schools have both pretty much all been approved at this point. Um, a decent number of the private universities, uh, but some of them did not apply or, or did not um, meet the requirements. And the same goes for community colleges. Some of them are in, some of them are not. Um, so you're gonna probably have the, the poll workers with this like list of which IDs are okay, which ones are not, and they're gonna have to figure out on the fly um, if you're, uh, school student ID was accepted or not. So uh, that can create some confusion. And I think to the extent that uh, people get pushed out because of that, um, you know, the, the Board of Elections IDs may be sort of the, the fallback option for somebody who maybe, you know, is an out-of-state student. Uh, they have a driver's license from a different state uh, that would not count as voter ID, uh, but they're eligible to vote in North Carolina and have chosen to register here. Um, 
that's where the student ID issue, I think, may be trickiest uh, for folks like that. And we should see, you know, when the when the legislature was debating, you know, this new student ID law and, you know, and ultimately passing it, and, you know, we saw a lot of talk, at, you know, on the floor, you know, the House, the Senate, about kind of having these rules that kind of gave a little bit of a grace period for people in 2020 that, you know, kind of phase out over time. So, you know, it could be the case that, you know, like if, you know, it's in the law that if you have a valid excuse for not having an ID, you know, then, you know, that's something that could be acceptable, you know, to be able to cast a provisional ballot uh, now, but, you know, who knows what will be in the future, but, you know, I think yeah. now probably everybody should go get an ID. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and I think this, this prelude, the primary will be the sort of the where they discover the what-ifs that they weren't necessarily planning on, and that's sort of what the, the tweets at the, the election watchdog crowd, I mean, the, the names of people at this public hearing were all people you recognize, like Bob Hall and Jen Jones and others who are, you know, just at about just about every state board of elections meeting, um, and so Hall was his big concern was um, if you have this ID issuing equipment and it breaks down and somebody wants to vote on the spot, is there a way that you know they can have their account flagged as hey they applied for an ID, uh, we just couldn't give it to them because our machine broke down, as opposed to sorry you're out of luck you can't vote because the machine broke down. So there's all these little hypothetical situations that I think will probably get ironed out, but um, there could be some rocky moments in the March primary for sure. Well, the other thing we haven't really talked about on Domecast, but that has been just a huge state issue, um, albeit one that's not really covered by our team too much, is is the whole uh, controversy over the UNC Board of Governors giving uh, $2.5 million uh, for uh, basically uh, uh, shipping and handling on Silent Sam, the Confederate statue, to go to the uh, uh, to this Confederate group. Yeah, some um, Confederate veterans. Very, very uh, unusual way to, to spend state money, and all done in secret, um, not at public meetings. Um, so just kind of wanted to see what you guys are, are hearing about that in terms of reaction from political leaders, uh, from the legislature, who after all appoints uh, these Board of Governors members. Um, has, that, has that been uh, a, big, a big topic lately? No, and I mean, you know, for the political audience, that's kind of the, the story, you know, but like you said, you know, every member of the Board of Governors who, you know, is the group that came up with this uh, idea uh, is appointed by the state legislature and, you know, specifically, for, you know, re in recent years, the Republican majority in the state legislature, and you've really seen almost radio silence from the legislature. Um, I think the total Democrats have spoken out against it, but as far as Republican leaders who actually picked these people to be on the Board of Governors, Nothing. And then, granted, it's a time of the year where, since they're not in session, we can't go stick a microphone in their face at the end of every session and ask them about the controversial topic of the day, but they certainly have not taken any initiative to send out statements or call reporters or anything. Right. But, you know, it, and it cuts both ways. You know, you're seeing that, you know, the, the people who have appointed the Board of Governors, you know, aren't really out there having their back, you know, as this thing has blown up into really national news. I and mean, the New York Times has been writing about it. You know, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, you know, and the, you know, yeah, it's just been silence. You haven't seen any criticism or defense. It's just been, you know, kind of silence. And then almost the Board of Governors the same. You know, you've seen them. They've had uh, at least one, I think maybe two meetings. Yeah, some of their committee meetings were by phone, ostensibly because they had commencement ceremonies to attend. But then I looked at the commencement calendar. It's like, that's tomorrow, guys. Surely you can come <laughs> to a meeting today unless you really have to rest up for that commitment thing. Right. So they've just been having all, you know, 
no in-person meetings. They've changed all of their meetings to phone, and then you know you've seen you know protests of students and even you know some faculty and everything like that out there uh, who are you know clearly show up with their signs and then are disappointed that there is no yeah. One to wait so for the to. most part, you know the board of governors members don't return calls from reporters. Uh, the new chancellor of UNC, who has just went from interim to permanent. Uh, had his uh, media event to be introduced as the new chancellor and didn't take any questions afterwards, even though it was a media event, which usually involves a press conference. Uh, there was a, a, a looks like an op-ed article, I haven't read it fully yet, that ran in uh, the News Observer and Charlotte Observer today, with a, looks like a quintuple byline. Uh, five members of the mm -hmm. Board of Governors have authored an op-ed piece defending their decision. Um, yes, it was the members who had been part of the study I guess task force on this. Yeah, um, and so they're, uh, I guess, identifying the, uh, the agreements um, is going to have this $22.5 million through a separate charitable trust administered by a neutral independent trustee. So I think the, the big confusion is whether this becomes a slush fund for the Confederate veterans. Um, where they can use some of this money to store and display Silent Sam and then some could go fund their new headquarters, which is something their leader uh, referenced in a uh, message to members that was leaked to the press uh, about a week or so ago, or is this something where um, the two and a half million really does just have to go for Silent Sam related stuff and can't be, uh, in the words of someone interviewed by the, the Daily Tar Heel uh, in the last couple days, uh, create a um, you know, big fancy palace for the biker gang associated with the Confederate Veterans Group. All right. Well, I just didn't want to uh, let this go since we have three uh, UNC Chapel Hill alumni here on the on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Brian, anything you've noted about this? What's been, you know, as sort of an outside observer of someone watching it from afar, the, the distinction I think is not being made publicly, at least between the Board of Governors and UNC. Um, and I'm I'm interested, and, and I'm sure the reporting will continue on this, how much UNC Chapel Hill played a role in this versus how much the UNC system played a role in this. And, and if they were in lockstep or if there was disagreement between the actual university and, and the entire system, um, that's one thing that I've been interested as it plays out. Obviously, UNC Chapel Hill is getting a lot of the of the blowback for it. Obviously, that's the, the university that everyone associates with UNC. Um, but my understanding, and, and you guys can correct me, is that the this was done at a, at a higher level by the Board of Governors, by the people who operate the entire UNC system. Um, and I, I think that's been interesting because you've seen the protests on campus, certainly students up in arms about it. Um, seems like it was a decision maybe uh, made, uh, you know, sort of above the, above the university level. All right, well, let's take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. We're back with Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we pick the person most interesting or important in this week's news. Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the All Week? All right, I'm uh, going a little uh, semi-obscure, but for people who've been following North Carolina politics for a while, this is a name you know. Uh, Sean Hall, uh, if you recall <laughs> him from uh, previous U.S. Senate races, he was the Libertarian candidate slash pizza delivery driver who uh, made a bit of a splash uh, the last couple uh, U.S. Senate contests. 
Uh, Didn't may, he make videos of him in the basement? Him in the basement, like, basement drinking beer. beer, telling yeah. you about his libertarian philosophy. Yeah. Um, he also was, if you remember, the, one of the which now uh, has been adopted by you know Elizabeth Warren and not the libertarian philosophy yeah, part. But. Yeah, but yeah, his his style of campaigning and uh, in the uh, twenty fourteen uh, U.S. Senate race, uh, he memorably was in one of the debates he did between Tom Tillis and Kay Hagan wearing a cartoon cat tie. Um, and you know, having that opportunity to have a platform, he is not going to run for U.S. Senate this year, sadly. But he will be jumping into the NC House uh, contest. He announced on Twitter last week he's going to run in House District 31 in Durham County, which is uh, currently held by Representative uh, Zach Hawkins, a Democrat. Um, so he'll be one of a number of, uh, of libertarian candidates who have jumped in, particularly in the urban areas, um, as third-party alternatives. Uh, we've really only seen the libertarians with a big push in candidate filing this year. We have a, a newly formed Green Party, newly recognized Constitution Party, none of which seem to be running many much in the way of candidates for either the high-profile races or the legislative races. But uh, the libertarians certainly making a push, uh, particularly at the legislative level, and. Uh, We'll have some some name recognition with Sean Hall back in the game, and hopefully making some more interesting videos for us to, to watch. He, he mentioned one of the reasons he wants to run is to to make journalists' job more entertaining, and certainly you know appreciate him for that. <laughs> he really was uh, ahead of his time, like Jordan mentioned, on the you know kind of you know twenty first century fireside chat. You know, sit down with a craft beer and you know talk policy on you know just kind of a a low-budget social media kind of video. It was, you know, you are seeing that adopted by a lot more people. Yeah. All right, yeah, so Sean Hall is my pick. A uh, little bit of a throwback, but not really, because he's back in the game. Okay, Sean Hall and Hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? Uh, mine is canceled Christmas parades. Uh, we saw both Garner and Wake Forest had to, uh, or decided to, uh, cancel their Christmas parades uh, for fear of disruptions, uh, which was kind of a you know, coded term for uh, concerns that maybe people waving Confederate flags would show up and fight would break out of the parade or something like that. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, you hear about, you know, the war on Christmas, um, but you never think that it extends to, you know, little small town parades in, in Triangle Suburbs. Uh, yeah. But here we are. Yeah, there were so few Christmas parades to choose from that my family went to the Bailey Christmas Parade this year, uh, about like 30 minutes from our house down towards Wilson. It was a it was a fun little time. They, you know, they had the Piggly Wiggly mascot and Santa Claus, and you know, some guy with a um, submarine that he built and put on a float for some reason. You oh, know, great! That's awesome. Quality yeah. Christmas parade. No signs of any, you know, Confederate groups or anyone protesting Confederate groups. Um, thankfully, one of the local police departments apparently has a uh, military-grade Humvee, which they include in the parade. So I think that helped uh, deter any disruption in, in the small town of Bailey. Good. <laughs> Your, your daughter's going to know so much about North Carolina geography. Yeah, I'm taking her to all the bizarre little small towns that I find my way to. Yes, yeah. You, you, hit, up all the, you hit up all the hot spots in, in North Carolina <laughs> on the search for barbecue and festivals and parades. And I really don't know anybody else who's, who's, who gets out to uh, um, as many different corners of the state on your vacations uh, as Colin Campbell. So, I think Colin's positioning himself for a, uh, a run for governor in a few years. He's going yeah, to be in all 100 counties. Because apparently that's the thing that you want to brag about as a candidate these days, like that obscure guy running for U.S. Senate who somehow within like three weeks claims to have been to all hundred, which mm -hmm. I'm not even sure how that's logistically possible, but yeah, they're gonna call it the full Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brian Murphy, who? Oh, I should say that. Uh, what was it? Holiday parades are in the Christmas parades are in the hat. Canceled for Christmas, Christmas parades. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, Brian Murphy, who's your headliner? 
We almost made an entire podcast without mentioning the I word, but obviously impeachment is going to be the story of the week up here in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, the House, full House is expected to vote on it this week. Uh, the Senate is preparing for a trial that will probably start sometime early in the new year. Um, Senator Tom Tillis uh, has come out and said that he is a definite no. Um, there has been no crossing of the party line among the 13 members of the delegation. Um, it appears that all three Democrats will vote um, yes on the impe- impeachment articles, while all 10 Republicans will vote no. Um, impeachment certainly going to dominate the news up here. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of cheating and throwing in a second one, but I think Representative Mark Walker, who's uh, you know been a, a staunch defender of President Trump throughout this impeachment process, uh, he is probably the the headliner to watch for the coming week. Uh, he will have to make a decision about what race, if any, he's going to be in, and that may have a trickle down effect on on what happens at the congressional level or the or the state council level. Um, there may be some some others that have to react to to whatever move Mark Walker makes okay well i will go with impeachment as the headliner of the week just to uh just to fix the fact that we have not talked about that yeah we're um, so focused on state politics like, what's yeah. going on in dc impeachment yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. let's let's get back to lieutenant governor's race uh the important stuff but yes there is an impeachment going on um you know which uh, happens every uh, few decades or 100 years um so impeachment is the headliner of the week and uh for Brian Murphy, Colin Campbell, and Will Dorn. I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us again uh, next time on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.